Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the long-awaited episode of The Jason Jones Show. If inflation destroys value, then this is pure gold. And today, Mario and I are going to talk about No Safe Space is a new movie from Adam Carolla and Dennis Prager. And we're going to ask the question, are Zoomers, are Generation Z, are the Millennials snowflakes or are the young uh, clamoring to stay in their safe space? Or are the young people looking for a safe space for once in their life? And I argue they're not snowflakes at all. They just want to find a, a safe place. We also talk a little bit about The Two Popes on Netflix, the new movie A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick, and some articles I've written this week, including one, an expose that I published at Steve Bannon's uh, new website, Impeachment War Room on Joe Biden profiting off of the Iraq war. So sit back, relax, whatever you're doing, gridlock, traffic, working in the garage, lifting weights. I don't even know what you do when you listen to this podcast, but whatever you're doing, do it and listen to the Jason Jones Show. And this episode has been brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project, a movie to movement initiative. The Vulnerable People Project seeks to advance the incomparable dignity and beauty of the human person and inspire solidarity with the most vulnerable people in the world at the most vulnerable time in their life. Go to our website, thegreatcampaign.org, and donate today to help our initi- all of our initiatives, including this podcast. Jason. Mario, what's up, my man? Oh, good to hear from you. How are you? Good, good. Long time no talk. Yeah, we have a lot to talk about. Um, what, where do you want to start? All right, so here's what I got on my to-do list, guys. For the Jason Jones Show, what we want to talk about today is the movie No Safe Spaces, an article I just wrote on Joe, on Joe Biden, maybe give a, a little little description of this new movie, A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. And you want to talk about something you just watched on Netflix. Literally, yeah, just, just before I hopped in here. Uh, the, the two popes it's, it's it's prime real estate right now at least on my netflix it's like watch the two popes so i had to click i had to do it you know you're gonna make me watch it too <laughs> and I'm, I'm sure i'm gonna hate every moment of it you know what maybe you know now that you're just pointing to that i was ready for the worst my expectations were pretty pretty low i did you know i haven't read a single book of, of pope benedict's and i know he was you know so instrumental for the catechism and and so much more so i i didn't see his intellectual prowess really come through definitely like um pope francis's um sort of uh the hero, the hero for sure the hero but that's all you need to know when, when the world when netflix makes a pope a hero that's really all you need yeah. to know but right there but <laughs> that's all you need but to know. i i you know going with that caveat, I sort of enjoyed the ride, to be honest. I um, and I don't want to give it away, but uh, you know, so you have to watch it. But uh, all right, so we should put brackets on it because I want to talk about a hidden life. Yeah, and I've been right. I've been working on a review tonight, which probably by the time this podcast comes out, the review will be out. And, and my working title is "A Portrait of the Christ." Wow. So what I believe is, first of all, Terrence Malick is my favorite director. And I say that because I want you to think I'm 
artistically more sensitive and thoughtful than you, Mark. Yeah, which we all know. <laughs> you know, I just want to, I say that to impress yeah. you. Right. No, but I hate to say it. He is my favorite director. Wow. I know. It's kind of snobby. I, I, but, I've uh, heard, by the way, and I'm curious before you get into it, like I've heard most of his movies are scriptless uh, and like they're guided like day to day and people don't know if they're going to be in the movie or not. Is Do you know anything about the yeah, background of this mean, one? I, you know what? He's a mystery. So I only know what you know okay. from watching YouTube videos. Okay. We do share several good friends in common, and um, they're pretty good about keeping tight-lipped about his process. I don't know how much they even know. But, yeah, the rumors are there's they go in there with uh, a, a minimal script, generally. And actors, you know, I saw one, an actor say that, uh, you know, when you're in a Terrence Malick film, you know you're either going to be a star <laughs> Or the star of the film, or not in it at all. It's going to be somewhere in between that, <laughs> those two. But, uh, but yeah, to me, what I love about Terrence Malick is the sense of the numinous. That he's a director. That when you watch one of his films, I, I can tell you a, a, a beautiful story about the Tree of Life. Oh yeah, go ahead. And um, I just love the Tree of Life. And I, I don't, I usually beg not to be a part of the marketing of most films mm -hmm. where people will call me and ask Movie to Movement to help. And I watch the film and I beg them, God, no, please leave me alone. I don't want to help your film because it's crap. And the only film that I really begged to be on was the Tree of Life. And they said, thanks, but no thanks. <laughs> Go away, boy. And to me they're lost yeah they're lost <laughs> you know they, they made 50 million dollars if i was on the film they'd have made 50 million and eight dollars yeah. um but the tree of life to me was to the first person of the trinity what the passion of the christ is to the second if that makes any sense go watch tree of life but i have two tree of life stories that just i think convey how beautiful the film is i watched it five times in theaters and I was with my then COO, Joseph Lipp, like our fifth time going to theaters watching. We were actually surveying the audience after because I wanted to know what people's thoughts were in case I eventually got brought on the project, which I never did. And these two really far left atheists came out of the film just utterly furious. And for all the right reasons, they really understood that film in a way I felt most Christians didn't get and that it just presented the absurdity of a, of a cosmos without God, hmm. of a worldview devoid of God. And they were just angry and they were expressing why they were angry and they knew it and they felt that they were duped, which they weren't, but they didn't, they didn't want to go in and they, but they were so thoughtful and sensitive that they really got what Terrence Malick was trying to present, which is uh, life is much different for those of us who believe that there's an all knowing, all loving creator that has made us, in his image and likeness and those of us who don't believe in a transcendent creator and a transcendent moral order and a purpose for the universe. And they got it and they were angry. And then another tree of life story, which to me was amazing. I was on a flight from New York to Dublin and this young Irish kid saw my, I call him young. He was probably 26. He saw my scapular and he, you know, said, Oh, are you Catholic? I said, of course, you know, you're Irish. I guess you're Catholic. He's like, I've lost my faith a long time ago. 
And we were talking. I said, I just wish you could watch the Tree of Life. And I have to say, we had I had been upgraded to first class. So we were in first class. And they had these huge screens in the back of the the seats in, in front of you know, in front of us. We had these huge screens and and there were like hundred movies. And as we were talking, I told him, I, I, you really need to see the Tree of Life. And this might have been two years after the film came out. And I thought, as we were chit-chatting, I looked to see if the Tree of Life was there. And it was. And so me and this young man began talking about God. And I said, you know what? I don't want to even talk to you anymore because Tree of Life is here. Can you just watch this film? And it's a long film, but it was a long flight. And, uh, and then we can talk afterwards and I'm going to take a little nap. And this young man put the tree of life on and he just was crying the whole film. And at the end of it, he just said, thank you so much. My life has been changed today and my faith has been restored. Um, wow. And so a lot of folks who would see the tree of life might even miss the whole point. They wouldn't, <laughs> understand, they wouldn't even understand how that could happen. But this young man definitely got it. And I will say Terrence Malick's new film, A Hidden Life, which we're not even going to be talking about today, is in my mind his most beautiful film. And so, Mario, I hope me and you can go see it this week and then talk about it, because to me it is really a portrait of the Christ. Uh, if there was the if Mel Gibson and Steve Maciewicz's film, The Passion of the Christ, Terrence Malick's new film is a portrait of the Christ. A portrait, not the portrait, because there are lots of portraits of the Christ. But this is a portrait of the Christ. So for those of you who've seen it, you probably know where I'm going. That's going to be the title of my review. Mario, you don't know where I'm going with that. But this <laughs> film is amazing. And y'all need to go see it. That's it. That's awesome. That's all I'm going to say. That's awesome. Um, you have uh, also another a few articles coming uh, out, right, that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, well, you want to – did you read – so I had an article. I had my review of um, – that probably should have come out six months ago. Uh, could have come out a year ago mm -hmm. on Dennis Prager and Adam Carolla's new movie, No Safe Spaces. And I'm so glad. And I really didn't even do a review. I was interviewed by John Zmirak. John and I, John Zmirak, the uh, editor of The Stream, senior editor, contributing editor at The Stream, which is the best thought site in the universe, in the cosmos, wow. anywhere you can go. Really in the whole universe, it's the best thought site there is. And John and I, as we were talking about the film, he's like, can I just interview you and put this in an interview format? And I said, yeah. So that's what we did. We were, as we were talking, he was just taking notes and, and it sort of became my review of the film. But I'm glad that my review didn't come out until this week, because first of all, it's one of the most important documentaries I have ever seen, because it defends to me really the great treasure of our republic which is freedom of, of speech hmm. and the first amendment and but my thoughts on the film has drastically changed in the past two weeks so did you read my review no i did not okay so no safe spaces has adam carolla who's i think an agnostic or an atheist kind of a wild libertarian guy his his whole career grew up as a comedian he was a boxer and a jock raised in the uh, government housing or section housing by a single mom, was a day laborer, somehow I think got into comedy, then found his way into MTV. Then he had this real raucous show called The Man Show, which I think was on was on Spike or Comedy Central mm -hmm. or one of those channels. And now he has the number one podcast in the world, 
Um, but we're, one day we will surpass him, Mario. <laughs> and <laughs> and then and then his his partner in the film is Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is a very very thoughtful, very reserved, very bright, uh, very religious Orthodox Jew. So you have these two kind of guys that that seem to have nothing in common. But they're but they share in common this commitment to free speech. And this whole documentary has people from Cornell West, Van Jones, and even Barack Obama standing up to this sort of culture, this cancel culture, this uh, victimist culture uh, that doesn't want to hear dissenting opinions. And so, really, what I love about No Safe Spaces is I talk about conserving American liberalism, liberalism not as that it is the word is used today, which really means illiberal, um, but liberal in the sense of advocating freedom. There's a liberal left and a liberal right. There are those conserving liberalism, and there's there are those who are trying to progress. Uh, those what we call progressive liberals, but they're both really committed to the free market, capitalism, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, pluralism. And now on the right, there are those that are on the right and the left, there are those who are illiberal, who don't believe in religious freedom, don't believe in the First Amendment, don't believe in free markets, economic freedom, don't believe in your right to private property, don't believe in the Second Amendment. Um, but this film really focuses on the First Amendment. And the reason why I'm so glad I didn't really publish this review at the stream until this uh, it actually came out yesterday is because um, I had been giving out thousands of tickets to college students across the country through Movie to Movement. And as part of that, I'd been speaking at the University of Hawaii to political science classes and giving out tickets. And after watching No Safe Spaces like 10 times and speaking to uh, a thousand college kids, 20 kids at a time over the past couple of weeks, I really had an epiphany, hmm. which is that these young people, these the Generation Z, they're not snowflakes. And they're not longing to stay in some safe space, which I would have said two weeks ago, that they were sheltered from uh, diversity of opinion. And they've been so sheltered their whole life, they want to remain sheltered. But... And that's sort of the narrative on the right, right? Mm -hmm. That these snowflake kids have been so sheltered that um, that you know we call them snowflakes. Then on the left, they the the ideological left. I'm not talking about the young people themselves. They actually do want to shelter young people and everyone else from the ideas that people like you and I want to share. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that we would want to say that. But what I realized is what young people are, and the majority of of those under 26 do reject the First Amendment. Can you believe that? Hmm. It seems almost unbelievable. When when we were when I was in college, you could maybe say that about the Second Amendment, but the idea that college students would reject freedom of speech was just unthinkable uh, when I graduated college just a little over 20 years ago. But what I had realized in my conversations with these young people is they weren't longing to remain in a safe space. They never had a safe space. Hmm. See, Mario, because if you're under 27, you're, you're more different from a 30-year-old. If you're 22, you're more different 
from a 27, from a 27 year old, Hmm. than you are, uh, or I should put it this way. A 27 year old has more in common with me, maybe more in common with the Mycenaeans than they do with the 19 year old, because those 26 or so and younger have had to experience something no young person has ever had to experience in the history of the human family, which is that when you and I were kids, Mario, I don't know about you. I got picked on mm-hmm. and I, I moved from my mom's neighborhood, which was a pretty diverse neighborhood to my dad's, which wasn't. And I wore parachute pants and cut off shirts with kanji on them. And I wore fila shoes and I moved to the school and they made fun of me. They made fun of the way I dressed, you know, imagine this white kid with parachute pants and fila shoes and, and they made fun of me. They really made fun of my philos. And the reason I, I'm even thinking about it is I was just at the mall and they had the very shoes that I was made fun of for wearing in this section that said retro, one of these philos shoes from the 80s, the very same shoes that got me tortured. And I'm buying those shoes, by the way. I'm going to wear them with pride. <laughs> but when I wore those shoes, if I went to school, kids made fun of me and they would. They, they would sing. And I would. I liked Prince and these kids liked you too. And I would always be singing Prince as I walked. I still sing as I walk in the grocery store. And I'd be singing Prince, walking down the halls. And so I walked in the gym one day, and these little punks were singing the song Purple Rain. Uh, But they would replace Purple Rain with Jason Jones. So just imagine Purple Rain, the song. But it was just Jason Jones instead of Purple Rain. (laughs) And And they'd make fun of my shoes and my pants and my shirts. But then I got into my house, the door shut, and it ended. But today, if they don't like your shoes, they take a picture of you, they put it up on Instagram, and you are made fun of 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Yeah. Let's say your mother or father does something embarrassing, and they're posting it on social media. Your mother has some embarrassing picture on social media, and some kids will share it. And you're a 14-year-old, and now people are making fun of your mother or your father something from social media through the whole school, the whole neighborhood. And God forbid for some of these young people, these, these can become memes that go around the world. So you're a kid, but you're living the life of like only Frank Sinatra had to live a gener- couple generations ago, you know, yeah. where you're basically followed around by the paparazzi. You're made fun of 24 seven. People are mocking you, tweeting about you, talking about you, texting about you. Instant messaging about you, Snapchatting about you, TikToking about you. And and even if they're not, you feel it. So that's the number one way these kids have been harassed. And so they're told this is free speech. This is freedom of expression. Really? Ah, okay. And then what else? So I've been speaking at these high schools, I mean, these colleges, Mario, and I said to these young people, and I thought they'd be offended because just five years ago, I think they would have been offended. I said, what's been pouring into your brain unfairly since you were nine years old through your smartphones? Do you know they didn't miss a beat? That's incredible. They said, huh? It's incredible. They didn't miss a beat. They said pornography. One kid shouted, I plead the fifth. (laughs) And they all just shouted pornography. And I said, it's unfair to you that your moral imagination was invaded at nine years old, 10 years old, 11 years old through your smartphones with the worst kind of pornography. Destiny De La Rosa, a friend of mine, her daughter at a party, she's in sixth grade just last week, and she wrote about this for the Dallas Morning News. They were watching rape porn. What? Sixth graders on their phones. So, you know, what I realized was 
Generation Z is very different than the millennials. And you can see it on TikTok where they express this. They call anyone over the 26 years old boomers. Okay, boomer. Okay, whatever, boomer. They're Zoomers and everyone else is a boomer. And I realized that is a very good demarcation point. You could really just divide United States into two generations at this point. Wow. Those of us 27 and older, those of us who got through our formative years without hardcore pornography pouring into our phones, without being bullied 24-7. And so uh, this is maybe kind of long-winded, but that's why I love podcasts because – but this is what I want to say, Mario. Mm -hmm. We need to defend the First Amendment because the First Amendment is meant to protect political speech. But instead, they allow bullying – they allow pornography, but they literally will deperson you for, for certain political positions because they don't want people to feel unsafe. Yeah. Well, these young people feel unsafe, but they're young and maybe they can't express what makes them feel unsafe. Is it me saying that I support a border wall that makes them feel unsafe? Is that what makes them unsafe? Is it me saying that a child in the womb should have legal protection from the violence of abortion? Is that what makes them feel unsafe? Or is is watching rape porn at a sixth grade birthday party making them feel unsafe? Is being bullied 24-7 on Instagram making them feel unsafe? So they're not rejecting the First Amendment. They think they are. They think they're, or we think they are. They're rejecting actually the left's, the rulings of these leftist courts that have inflation destroys value that protect animated porn of child rape and say that's freedom of expression, but you can be depersoned on Facebook. I was literally depersoned on Facebook for a month for making a video saying that I think Ellen DeGeneres is a beautiful human being. There's no hyperbole here, Mario. This is what I said. You remember, I remember I made a video saying, I think Ellen DeGeneres is a beautiful human being. And I think it's repulsive that people on the left are calling her a sellout for expressing forgiveness and thoughtfulness and kindness to Kevin Hart for a joke he made in 2012. That's all I said. And I was literally, you have violated Facebook's terms of service. For a month, I was suspended. Just this week, I wrote an article on Joe Biden. I'd like to maybe talk about it on Joe Biden's family getting a, over a billion dollar contract, a building contract and in Iraq following the disastrous foreign policy of the Obama administration to rebuild houses that were destroyed because of our policy decisions. I tried to monetize that ad and it was denied by Facebook. Hmm. Could you imagine? Hmm. So this is, this is this murky, weird situation we're walking into. And that's why... I want everyone listening. You got to go see No Safe Spaces or you got to pre-order it on Amazon. You got to bring it to your church, to your schools, um, because Dennis Prager has a great line at the end of the film, which is America is actually the ultimate safe space. And it's the ultimate safe space because of pluralism. Do you remember, Mario, when our liberal professors, pluralism was every other word out of their mouth was a pluralistic society, pluralism, Mm -hmm. pluralism. Mm -hmm. That's what's so great about America. What happened to that? Why aren't we defending that anymore? That's what's great about America. Yet, um, now we're, we're a homogenized political speech 
and young people are rejecting the idea of freedom of speech. They find it threatening because um, because they're being told that pornography and and bullying is um, freedom of speech. Yeah. Just like what happened to those poor Covington Catholic kids. They were bullied by the world. By the world. By the world. By Bishop Barron. Catholic leaders, pro-life leaders even, bullied these boys all in the name of standing up for the vulnerable. Yeah, right. Grown men. (laughs) That's how it Um, works, right? We're all defending the vulnerable. And maybe we can use that to get into the Christianity Today article. Yeah. Right. Um, Another example of pretending you're standing up against a big bad bully when you're really just standing with the, the, the gods of the age. Yeah. Hey, Jason, did that that insight about um, them not growing up with safe spaces, was that in, explored in the documentary? No, I think it's kind of unique to me. And I, I sent it to I hope it got to Dennis. I sent it to his team and Adam today. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really came to me in the middle of one of my speeches. And I looked out at the young people and I said, guys, this is how it came about. I was talking to the young people. I was scheduled to speak on the Vulnerable People Project, and I had said to them, this is really how it worked with my ADHD and uh, dyslexia, you know, how my brain works. Yeah, so yeah. standing in front of a room full of young people, I said, hey, you know, I was going to talk to you about the Vulnerable People Project and our work to advance the interests of stateless ethnic and religious minorities and, and, and the vulnerable from the child in the womb to the child on Mount Sinjar. So, but today I just, I want to talk to you about this movie, No Safe Spaces that I don't really think fits in maybe to the, 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 the neat, the neat mission statement of my organization. Maybe I'm doing a stretch. I'm stretching a little bit by promoting this. And then all of a sudden, as I was looking at all these young people, I said, wait a second, wait a second. I'm dumb. I said, this movie perfectly fits the mission state of my organization. And I said, I hope you excuse me. I'm about to call an audible and give a speech off the cuff. And so I talked, I just talked from the heart. I thought, you know, these kids, they express offense all the time. They're told they, they, they look for opportunities to mob you and to bully you. And if God forbid you use a gender pronoun or something and they can write the Dean and tweet at you and, and so, I, you know, I thought I was walking right in that territory, but I, I don't really care. And um, but I mean, I, I care. I don't want to hurt people's feelings, but I don't care if people feign that I hurt their feelings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, let them let them do that. That's fine by me. But uh, but then I said, you know what? This movie actually does defend the vulnerable and the vulnerable it seeks to defend is you. And then I just poured out my heart and said, it breaks my heart that you have been bullied 24-7, or at least you have the fear of retribution. Mm. And I said, do you know why you guys mob mob so quickly, people? It's just to be left alone. You're signaling to the mob, I'm with you, leave me alone. Yeah. Not that you want to pounce on the lone victim, the sole victim. You just want to be left alone. When pro- Yeah, so... Yeah, these, you know, these Covington Catholic kids, pro-life leaders jumped on these Covington Catholic boys. Why? Did they jump on them because they wanted to bully some young students? No. They just said, hey, we're not with them. Don't attack us. And it's the same phenomenon. These, You know, it happens every day in classrooms across the country. And you have the faculty and the teachers 
administration playing the role of, uh, you know, whipping the mobs. So these young people are just so frightened. And, and then, well, you know, you and I can't even begin to understand. Um, I didn't even have a computer till my junior year of college. I, I had uh, a brother word processor. I got out of the army and I went to Sears and brought a, uh, bought a brother word processor, which is what I used. Mm-hmm. I was a junior in college. Um, didn't even know that online porn existed until I was a senior in college. And a guy was like, come in there, God, look at this. And, you know, I was on dial up. And it was just absurd. Our pornography, when I was a kid, was the Sears catalog, which was like three pages of ladies' underwear between the tires and I think like the washing machines or something. That, <laughs> that was pornography. So, you know, I, you and I cannot begin to understand what it's like for young people to see this. We have, you know, once a year you'd see a Playboy and then every once in a while there would be these even more raucous magazines that somebody would find, you know, somewhere. Um, And I remember every one of those magazines I saw as a child, I can tell you, I remember those images are burned into my brain. Um, And, but these youngsters, you know, I have this thing, Mario, I ask these kids, I'll say, Hey, um, I tell a story about the first time a girl held my hand. We were at the roller rink. I was in sixth grade or seventh grade. We were at the roller rink and maybe fifth or sixth grade. I forget. Yeah, I was fifth or sixth grade. And um, we we're at the roller rink. And I know that Hall and Oates was playing. <laughs> and they said, you know, it's time for the slow dance. Did you ever do that, Mario, in Nicaragua? Did you guys have the slow dance? No, we, no, we had the 90s. You guys didn't have it. Oh, this was amazing, bro. We had tech, techno and and uh, inline uh, rollerblades. This is a different different time. You didn't have the slow dances? No. Oh, brother. Okay, so let me just tell you. Okay, set the stage. The roller rink with Coca Cola, like you can't even get now with this good syrup, perfectly formulated, with the perfect amount of carbonation. Then cheese fries with real cheese, you know, and uh, just the best music. And because, you know, disco was still cool and you had disco and you had the 80s coming up and it was just it was great. And so we were I was, you know, I roll I roller skated up to this girl. And it was the first time I had the courage to ask a girl to skate with me. And I said, you want to skate with me? And she said, yes. And I didn't even think to hold her hand. It wasn't even in my wildest imagination. I thought we would just skate next to each other. And as we were skating, she grabbed my hand. Like, brother, that was magic right there. Hmm. You can't even tell you. I can't even tell you. So when I was speaking to these young people last week, I asked them to raise their hand if if they held the hand in a way like that of someone of the opposite sex before they saw graphic pornography. And they all said, nah, we... They all were like, yeah, I saw graphic pornography before a girl ever let me hold her hand. Yeah, what does that do? What does that do to us? I can't even imagine. And I feel a lot like Alan Bloom, you know. I'm not here even advocating. Alan Bloom was this uh, Straussian, a student of Leo Strauss, is a really interesting guy. Homosexual, lived a really reprobate life, died of HIV. But he wrote a great book called The Closing of the American Mind. And he really writes very eloquently and what we're doing to young people and robbing them of eros 
So I'm not talking here as a Christian, Puritan, Catholic, religious zealot. I'm just talking here as a guy that grew up in the 80s that knew how exciting it was to roller skate with a girl and just hold hands and then eat cheese fries and drink Coca-Cola, you know, Mm -hmm. before my mind was invaded with rape porn, which I'm proud to say, not saying I've never seen porn, Mario. No, no. I've never seen rape porn. And uh, it breaks my heart that my friend's daughter had to see this at a sixth grade birthday party. Yeah. Because this might sound embarrassing. In sixth grade, I was still playing with Little Green Army men. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. You you were, I think we, were, we talked about this last time we hung out and you were even saying that that the First Amendment was focused on, uh, what is it, political dissentment? Is that correct? So it's protecting political speech and religious speech. Yeah. Not obscenity. Yeah. Not yeah. crime, not, not like video, you know, captured crimes that then you sell. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's got me thinking. I'm still processing what you said. And, and by the way, this just, and even what you said before about them, uh, you know, this generation not having a safe space and therefore that's why they fight. Uh, they, they fight for it more than any other generation that I know of that type of thinking, Jason is why we have this podcast. It's just cause I, I really like listening to your perspective in these things and, and I hope, I hope, uh, I hope our listeners as well. So thanks for sharing well, that. Well, thank you, Mario. But think about this. And not only that, we didn't even get into the broken family. So my mom and dad, I never know. What it, I, ne- I never know what it's like. So my kids love to sleep in between us, right? Like mm-hmm. Every night, they one, two, three, four, or all the above, five kids will come into the room and I'll wake up with one, two, three, four, five kids on the bed, on the floor, around the bed. You know, I never knew as a child what it was like to look up and see my mother and my father's face in the same frame. It's never happened. Never in my life that I look and see my mom and dad at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. That's kind of crappy, you know? Yeah. I never even thought about it until, as a child. I never thought about it until I was a parent. And I just see how happy my kids are when they get between me and my wife and look up at us and they see us both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just status quo now, yeah. right? It's just status quo for children not to have a mother and a father yeah. in their home. Is it over over fifty percent of the population? Yeah, definitely for everybody. Demographic groups well over fifty yeah. percent. Yeah, and uh, so there's that's not having a safe space. Then mommy and daddy have new boyfriends and girlfriends, and then they break up, and then breakup comes with like emotion and anger and sorrow, and mom's crying, dad's crying. Plates are flying. I'm in, you know, now the kid's alone in his room with his phone. And uh, he's lonely, right? Insecure. And now, bam. So, of course, they want a safe space. And they're not snowflakes. You know, there's some kind of, like, they're hardened warriors in a way. Yeah. Um, But we need these, we need this Gen Z to really understand that the beautiful gift they were given with this constitutional republic and how the Bill of Rights and our Constitution and the Declaration principle are treasures. And they are the foundation, the key to a safe space. A real safe space. And then something else when I was watching this film, mm-hmm. 
which I put in the article. And I think you and I, you met my buddy Uday. Yeah, yeah, in Dallas. Yeah, so something my buddy Uday said, who, you know, he was, uh, he developed new technologies for Saddam Hussein, right? He was just a scientist. And he, I think it was developing drones. And during the U.S. invasion, he was so excited because he thought he'd get to work for NASA or Google or something, you know? But of course, they never even let him come to the United States until the time you met him. And he came for my friend's father's funeral. And we, I think we were speaking at SMU when you met him. And he said something to me, which was just so beautiful. I said, what was most surprising to you about the United States? And he said, well, two things. Number one, I never have felt more welcomed or more at home anywhere in the world. And I didn't expect that. I thought people would hate me. I thought I would, I would, I was really nervous to come here. And I thought that people would see me as the enemy, but they saw me as an American. He's very, you know, he's very handsome and he's very eloquent and he speaks perfect English. And he said, they thought I was an American and they definitely treated me that way. No one made me feel like an outsider once. He said, and the other thing was that I didn't see Muslims, but I saw Islam everywhere. I didn't see Muslims anywhere, but I saw Islam everywhere. I said, what do you mean by that? He said, everywhere I looked, I saw Americans reaching for God, talking about God, thinking about God. He said, that's a beautiful thing. And the reason why I love our country and the illiberals on the right who want some kind of theocracy, these weirdos, um, I don't think they get it. Like Chesterton said, you know, America is a nation with the soul of a church. He might not have meant that as a compliment. I don't know. Um, He might have been talking about us. You know, it's a double-edged sword. It's sort of the ideology of Americanism, which is not what I'm advocating. But that this classical liberal, this American liberalism allows everyone to reach for God debate God, discuss God. There's nothing more beautiful. That's the most beautiful prayer. You know, when I was in Sudan with my buddy, Stu Epperson Jr., who owns Truth Talk Radio, it's a big shot evangelical. We would be sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with Muslims all day and building wells and inspecting wells, me and uh, Eduardo Verastegui and other friends and Stuart. And so Eduardo and I were the only Catholics in the group. Can you believe in the hot Sudan sun, we would be working hard all day, exhausted, but then we would talk and debate God as Christians, Protestants and Catholics, Mary, intercession of the saints, the Eucharist, apostolic succession, contraception, all these things until the sun was rising and it would get heated. And one time I said to the gang, I was like, guys, this is prayer. This is prayer. God loves this. We are sitting here exhausted night after night. And then each night we'd say, okay, tomorrow we're going to sleep. But did we sleep? No. Night after night we talked about God. And that's what freedom allows people to freely express their doubts, their thoughts, their beliefs, their dogmas, all in the public square. And I want young people to have that. In fact, Mario, I have an an idea for a segment for a podcast I want to pitch you. Can I pitch you right now? Do it. It's called Dude, That's Weird. Uh Uh-huh. Okay? What's it about? Okay, so what I want to do is Dude, That's Weird. I want to have people on from different religions. 
and I'm going to ask them to tell me the strangest teaching of their faith, the weirdest thing. And I'm, you know, whatever they say, I'm sure I'm just going to say, dude, that's weird. All right. This is just in my head. Okay. Good ball here. <laughs> like, so for us as Catholics, it would be the Eucharist, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's weird. Extremely weird. We don't have to, we won't get into it now. We'll save it for a whole episode. We can have someone on, you know, who, who speaks clearly, not Bishop Aaron, you know, uh, maybe Taylor Marshall or somebody who would express clarity, try to express the Eucharist in a way that's, that's really would be most offensive. We, you know, with no, no usage of obscure language, we're not seeking to be opaque. We want clarity. And then when you express what the church teaches on the Eucharist, clearly the response is, bro, that's weird. So I want to have LDS members, you know, uh, Jews, Muslims, Scientologists, people from every religion. I want to know their strangest belief because at the heart of it, atheists at the heart of it, metaphysics is weird right like when you get down to these things it's weird there there's nothing uh, no religion is devoid of this so let's just but let's not use it as a cheap shot right i know i can know i know some things about mormonism that we could say that that sound pretty strange well the eucharist sounds pretty strange yeah um and so i just want let's let's sort of like let's get the strangest things out and then let's hear them out yeah, because it might sound strange to us, but then when they express themselves, we might go, "Wow, that's not as strange as it sounds." Like the Eucharist, especially like as a Girardian myself, when you when I look at the Eucharist through sort of the writings of Rene Girard, it starts to make like a real sense. Um, but anyways, that's what our society gives us, and that's what I want our posterity to have, and that's why this movie No Safe Spaces to me is so important. Um. Because I don't want it to die with us. When I was in college, we would stay up. And I was an atheist in college, a very aggressive atheist. Um, and thanks be to God, I would was able to express all these ideas I had. And then my Christian friends could push back and challenge me. And it eventually pushed me in the direction of becoming a Christian myself. Imagine if the Christians didn't feel safe to challenge me. That's right. Man, I gotta watch that movie. Is it, is it playing in these parts? Yeah, it's a dull cannery. I'll go with you. Okay. You know, movie to movements purchased thousands of tickets this uh, in the past month. Um, we should go see that, and I'm probably going to go see a Hidden Life two or three times this week, just because I really want to get this article right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's, um, I review right. Let's, let's find the time. And and regarding your segment, the dude, that's weird. That also reminds me that maybe you should start inviting people of other faiths into the podcast. So that could be a series on it, on its own, just friends from other faiths. Yeah, you right. Know? Yeah, so it's a good idea. Maybe uh, 2020 goals. Yeah, 2020 goals. We're going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> people don't want to keep us. We keep saying we're going to become regular. You know, you've got a big company, a new young family, and we've got this big movie coming out. Um, but uh, – yeah, I, I, I really want to do that. Just And, you know, partly the podcast is an opportunity for me to have somebody on that wouldn't say, hey, can I have an hour and a half to my LDS friends? Can we do an, have an hour and a half conversation on the infinite regress or on collab? Yeah. They're going to yeah. say, no. Hey, I have a segment of my podcast called Dude, That's Weird. We look at all religions 
and things that are the most uncanny about them. For example, in my own faith, we talked about the Eucharist. And anyone who's not Catholic who knows anything about the Eucharist is going to be like, yeah, that's really weird. <laughs> Um, and so it's, and I do not want to do pot shots. It's the exact opposite. I think that there's probably some really deep thinking that goes behind things that we can use, um, that we, we use in conversations to sort of undermine other faiths. Uh, but, but if, if we were to allow them to express themselves clearly and honestly, uh, there might be some insights in there that we can, we can learn from. I like that. I like that. We should start scheduling and getting those done soon. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, The Christianity Today article, I was curious. Maybe we can wrap wrap it around there. You sort of mentioned it, but I'm just curious um, if you think that's just like a a miss from that magazine or if, if, you know. Before we get to the Christianity Today uh, magazine, can I ask Mm -hmm. you a question? Yeah. All right. Have you ever been forwarded an article from Christianity Today in your life? No. (laughs) No, I haven't. When I was an atheist, no one ever said, hey, Jason, you need to read this article from Christianity Today. That has never happened once in my life. When I was an atheist, no one said, this article is going to really influence you. In my 30 years in the culture war, no one has ever said, Jason, you got to read this article from Christianity Today. When I was opposing the invasion of Iraq, saying it's going to expose Christians to genocide, no one said, hey, there's this powerful article in Christianity Today also standing up against President Bush. No, I I just have never, ever been sent an article from Christianity Today. So by the way, Mario, I think my good mic just jumped back online. This is so frustrating. So for those of you listening, if you notice, we're coming in and out of mics. Apologize. Um, I don't, we don't know what's going on there. Yeah, but, uh, stay with this microphone, whatever you're doing. Just keep going. I didn't do anything. Like it literally yeah. just all of a sudden I started seeing it. Uh, the good mic popped back on. I didn't touch anything. So, so here's my thought about the Trump article. So what we're talking about now, you guys already know, is that Christianity Today came out with an article that was really piss poor, that made no points. By the way, if you're listening to this and you don't know, I'm not a huge Trump fan. I'm not an ever Trumper, right? I made a video when Trump won the nomination saying I will not endorse Trump. Who I vote for is my business. Leave me alone. And I voted for Trump. Okay. I don't know if I've ever said that before. I think it's kind of obvious. I voted in a way that I thought would best protect the child in the womb from the violence of abortion. And it would limit the use of our military shattering nation states around the world. Um, So I voted for Trump. In fact, he's been really good in life. Uh, and foreign policy, it's like wild swings. <laughs> I've written very critical articles just in the past eight weeks in Trump. But this impeachment's a total farce. And Christianity Today writes this article that begins with calumny and smears and then says it's obvious after the impeachment hearings that he should be impeached. But did I miss it, Mario? Did they give one example? No. Nothing. They just said he's a, he's a distasteful human being and you don't like him. Yeah. And therefore, and it was obvious, but they'd never made their case because there is no case for impeachment. It's disgusting. Yet they've never, and they even said in the article, they're so proud that they stay out of politics. What they're saying is they are so proud that they do not deny the gods of the city. They are so proud that they don't defend women and children from the violence of abortion, that they are so proud 
that they don't stand up against stupid wars like toppling Saddam or trying to topple Assad or like in Libya that has left, left countries wrecked and minorities exposed to genocide and actual ge- genocides have erupted. They're so proud. Maybe they have said something, but never in a way that captured anyone's attention because I literally have never had anyone send me a Christianity Today article until they set their sails to the winds, the popular winds of the people in power, like they're some kind of hero. And let's be clear. I didn't like Trump for three reasons. I didn't believe he was pro-life. I thought his conversion was fake. I've come to believe, I don't believe he was ever pro-abortion. He was a New York businessman who said whatever he had to say to be left alone to do his business. And when he realized that what was in his heart, that destroying vulnerable children is reprehensible, also served as political ambition, he decided he would go with his heart. (laughs) That's That's what I think. And the two things that really just got under my skin, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, Mario, but I was covering the convention for a new site. I was so upset when Trump was going up to speak. This is how anti-Trump I was. I literally went to my hotel and drank and ate a pizza, didn't listen to his speech, and then came back and interviewed people. <laughs> right? In other words, don't hire me, America. <laughs> no, it's, just, it's a metaphor. I'm just to no, know. It's not a metaphor. I did that, Mario. I went to my hotel, ordered, took a six-pack, ordered a pizza, drank some beers, eat some pizza, did, watched Seinfeld, and then went back after his speech to interview people and what they thought of the speech. I was there for Peter Thiel's speech. <clears throat> and, and, and the two things that most offended me were, uh, you know, the thing with the disabled reporter, just little things like that just getting under, got under my skin. Yeah. And uh, something else he said on immigration just really got under my skin. But, but you have to look at how he's performed as a president. And, um, and when it comes to the impeachment, it's not if I, if I – did I not like what he said about a journalist? No. You know, hand gestures. Do I buy a story that he, he didn't know what he was doing? No. That's not an impeachable offense. <clears throat> and I might be wrong. Maybe he's telling the truth. Who knows? Mm-hmm. But the Christianity today was basically like, ick. Ick. You know? But I know the types of people that work there. They're these cradle evangelical Christians with soft hands, you know, who went from mommy's house to a nice dorm room, to a nice job, to a nice apartment, to a nice new car. They've never had any great ambition. They've never achieved anything great, but they've never known discomfort. And they sit there, you know, so smarmy. And they're not thinking about the wars that have been stopped. If Hillary won, Syria would have been toppled. And 800,000 religious minorities would have been exterminated or displaced. Fact. Hmm. We are close to overturning Roe v. Wade. Fact. They don't care about that. They just want to, you know, they want in their little progressive community to be thought of as, as good people. They're kneeling to the gods of the city. That's hmm. what they're doing. What did you yeah. think, Mario? I was confused. Um... I was confused and I'm, yeah, I'm trying to figure out if that, I mean, the timing of it with the release of, of the impeachment um, with a vote. Uh, and then I was like, wait, is there, is there a crack in the, in the evangelicals? Like that are, they're not going to be supporting Trump. And, you know, there's always, you know, people that, that will not like him. But I was just, I was just trying to understand if there's a crack in the, 
evangelical block call it. Um, and that's why I wanted to understand your, your take on it. And it seems like they're, if anything, people are going to start cracking on Christianity today. <laughs> yeah, there's no crack. No, Franklin Graham came out. Dr. Dobson came out and dropped a bomb today. I love our evangelical brothers and sisters. Amen. Yeah. You know, I love them. And I was watching, when I was watching um, um, Hidden Life, there's just a great scene where this, the young couple that were standing up to the Nazis were just dancing and singing in a, in a good part of their life. And in the background, you see the crucifix just hanging there. You know, it's reminded me that as Christians, we're always called to be nailed to the cross for the vulnerable. And, yeah. um, and, I, and I thought, you know, kind of like I thought, well, do evangelicals have that? But, you know, they do. You know, they, they always say, well, take Christ off the cross. But no, Dr. Dobson was with the Passion of the Christ when the bishop's conference was not and saved it. Focus on the really? fact that Dr. Dobson saved the Passion of the Christ, literally. Really? Yeah, really. That's a true story. Steve McAvity the producer of The Passions, a mentor of mine, tells me all the time, if it wasn't for Focus on the Family, this film would have died. Really? And, um, you know, look. Wow. I, one of the big reasons that I was hesitant to support Trump um, is, you know, and why I took my position of I'm not going to endorse him, but who I vote for is my business, is I thought that voting for a guy like him would create scandal and would limit my utility and being useful to protect the vulnerable. Like there's, Full transparency. And all of my actions, I ask myself, like, how will this impact my ability for my apostolate to get in between the vulnerable and the violent? And so Trump offered a problem, a challenge for us. He, he does just talk like, you know, he's, he's a one of a kind. <laughs> I'm not going to defend the guy. And so for Christians like Franklin Graham, who come out and just boldly say, defend the guy and endorse the guy. They're doing it. Franklin Graham has lived a life of integrity. I don't know anything Christianity Today has done since the Grahams gave it away or since it's moved along. But I can tell you, Franklin Graham, I know all about what he's doing all over the world, from my own neighborhood to Iraq. I have witnessed with my own eyes from a block from my house, him feeding the homeless himself and his organization from a block from my house into the most war-torn parts of Africa and the Middle East, I have witnessed, I've been on the ground, and I've witnessed with my eyes. By the way, in Sudan, I witnessed something I can't even talk about that Franklin Graham did. You know, this is a brave man for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is a brave man for standing with the vulnerable. And I just picture, I know nothing about Christianity today, and I care so little, I'm not even going to Google it. But I just imagine they have a nice little office in a suburb somewhere. And they had their little cubicles, and it smells like cinnamon and hazelnuts. They wear <laughs> goofy sweaters, right? And they have never taken a risk for God or for their neighbor ever. But they think this article was some big risk, and they think they're so brave. Yeah, right. Goofballs. Yeah. Like Cyrano de Bergerac, this. Thank God. Here comes another enemy. <laughs> but I love them, Mario. I do love my enemies. Yeah. Well, thanks, Jason. I think that, that, that was sort of the insight that I was trying to, trying to look for. Did you have any other thoughts before we wrap it up? No. You know, I think it, it all kind of links up. We didn't get to talk about my article. I published an article at the impeachment war room, Steve Bannon's 
uh, website and it's just gone gangbusters. What I love about this podcast, the one thing I've done this week that's really taken off, we didn't even talk about, um, but it's, it's, uh, we'll put it up in the show notes. Joe Biden and his family, you know, profiting off of war. We should just do a whole podcast on that. The, the editors of Christianity Today, I'm sure, are not at all concerned that Joe Biden's brother got a billion dollar contract to rebuild homes. His brother's failed foreign policy. Um, uh, his, his, you know, Joe Biden's foreign policy, Obama's foreign policy led to the decimation of the Nineveh Plains. And then his brother gets a contract to rebuild those very places, a billion dollar contract. I'm sure Christianity Today isn't worried about that. You know what, Jason, how about when we record the intro, you can just talk a little bit about it so you can just um, point to it. Yeah. yeah, I'll do that. All right, Jason. Well, thanks so much for the hang- hanging out. And I look forward to the next few episodes for uh, ne- next year. All right, brother. We're gonna we're gonna get a system. We're gonna get processes. We're gonna make this a uh, thing. It's gonna be great. It's gonna, it's gonna be, be great. Amazing. Perfect. <laughs> All right, my friend. All right, All right. take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Follow me because I am relentless on social media. You can follow me on my personal Facebook page because I like to have a conversation with my friends. You are my friend. I also post a lot on Instagram, a little bit on Twitter, and go to my website, movie2movement.com. That's www.movie2movement.com. And you can find out about my latest film projects. Talk to you next week.